I don't want scalers. Scalers basically take somebody else's playbook and scale it. Less than 10 million, we're just making shit up over here. We don't have repeatability. There's no recipe. So what I tell founders to do is hire mechanics, people that are going to come in and help figure this stuff out and are comfortable with failure. Because like, how do you figure stuff out in life? You only really learn when stuff doesn't go wrong, right? Like, oh, I burnt my hand on the thing. I shouldn't do that anymore. And then you, okay, we did that. That didn't work. Oh, we did that. Salesforce, you think there was blogs we were reading? No, we go to a room. We'd be like, all right, here's a decision. We have two paths. Okay, what do we think? Okay, let's try this. Like 60 days later, it's like, how did that work? That was terrible. All right, let's not fucking do that again. You know, write that down. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, we're really excited to talk with Brett Queener, who comes to us from Bonfire Ventures, where he's a MD helping founders and CEOs with zero to one growth. Brett has an awesome background as a GM and COO operator from Salesforce to smart recruiters, an extensive experienced board member, and actually as a board member here at Pendo, who I work really closely with. Yeah, Brett's awesome. He's one of the few VCs who's actually operated before, which makes him have some very hot takes about what it's actually like to build a company versus like this narrative that VCs have sitting from the ivory tower. So our audience is going to love that conversation. They're also going to love the conversation around the death rate in startups and what Brett's seeing right now in the post-ZERP world and what he expects moving forward into 2024. For sure. He is probably one of the most entertaining board members I've worked with in my 14 years in venture. And I say that in a good way. I think because of that operator experience, Nolan, he is like one of the most challenging hit you on the chin, hit you over the head with a two by four, yeah. but paired with a nice hug. It, it's amazing like the skill set he has in doing that. I, I actually know a founder yeah. that Brett is on his board. And when I was talking to that founder, cough, cough, Danny, <laughs> Danny said, oh, Brett's super unfiltered. I can't wait to hear what he says. Yeah. And Brett just kind of has that like, he's been so successful in his career. He could say whatever he wants and he does. Yeah. And that's why our audience is going to love this show. I love it. And he was at this big company. It's not like he's worked with CHROs for 20 years at early stage companies, but he's one of the best that has his point of view on how to work with CHROs and the role itself. That's why it's been so fun to work with him. And yes, on the entertaining factor, him at board dinners is a whole nother level. (laughs) And like, I'm like, I got to sit next to Brett. I think like Brett's style is very much coming back into style into today's world in which like it is a capital constrained environment, interest rates are higher. Brett's a big believer in working hard and running lean and having excellent people on the team that are doers, that get shit done. Yes. And he talks a lot about his talent philosophy. For sure. He is a perfect blend of a hard ass that actually cares about people. So well said. Stay tuned after the interview for this week's segment, where Nolan and I discuss Block, formerly known as Square, killing performance reviews. All right, everybody, you're going to love this episode. Here's Brett. Brett, so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. We're stoked to have this conversation with you in a very open way. Your background's amazing. Started off at Siebel into Salesforce for 10 years and an oodle of numbers of board seats, advisor, investing, and now on the bonfire. And might I add, a board member of Pendo, where I'm at now. So thank you for joining us. I'm psyched to be here. Maybe a, maybe a vocal member at the uh, the Pendo board meeting is my what you call it. Might I add, one of the best storytellers I've I've ever met in my career. So oh my God, mention that as well. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> All right, Nolan, where are we starting, my friend? Brett, I'm curious if you can give us insight into the conversations happening right now between investors, founders, and execs, and specifically around 24. What are you thinking is going to happen going into 2024? Well, I mean, so Bonfire, just backdrop, um, we invest in seed stage companies. So they're babies. It's like eight to 10 people hoping a dream. 
you know, some Excel model that goes to infinity that we sort of chuckle at. So we tend to work sort of at the earlier stage. And so, you know, most of the companies that we work with, the funds about five to six years old are still at a very sort of existential stage. Um, now, I'm also on the board of companies, including Pendo at 200 million, a couple at 100 million. So a, a range of companies. But um, so for people that are yet at Series A, I think the interesting thing from a startup perspective is that the bar has changed. Um, the world sort of lost its head for about a three to five year period where people were raising money to get to one million ARR. And then therefore, if you had a million ARR, everything was figured out and you could raise a bunch of money and you were off to the races, which we now know is a joke. Um, and so the bar for Series A has raised probably from one million to probably two to three million. And not only two to three million, but people are expecting startups to sort of like having a child and they have to be captain of the football team, captain of the chess club and get a 1600 of their ACT and like house orphans. They need to sort of be amazing. So they have to show some level of growth, actually show retention, which is really important right now because retention wasn't what it was and efficiency early on. Whereas before people were like, as long as you're growing, we don't really care about burn. And what we're telling them is, that's really hard. That takes time. So you need to buy yourself the time to sort of get to those new benchmarks. And as part of that, not only buy themselves the time from a business perspective, but buy their buy them their own mental space. Like when I like being a founder of a startup is like the worst thing you can do for mental health. Right? Like it's not it's not a rational decision. Right? And so uh and I'll get to this later, but like it takes time. And if you're forcing any human being to sort of achieve greatness in a very short period of time, when the reality is you're a baby and you don't know much, it's probably not going to lead to sort of the most creative thinking because you're sort of, you're always under the pressure. So we tell them that. Um, I think the other thing we tell, especially for companies that are larger, look, we invest at the seed stage. Uh, our, LPs expect uh, returns in 10 years. And nobody told me this before I came as seed investor, a 10-year return um, as you put your own money into these funds. So as I remind founders, we don't do this for the money. We do this because we love the grind. So if you're at 5 to $10 million, um, I don't want you to talk about 24 without giving me context about 25 and 26, right? It's too short-term thinking to think about what we're doing in 24 because even at 5 to 10 to $15 million, you're still a baby. You're, you know, the analogy I like to use is average life expectancy is 77 years old. You want to get to $100 million and maybe you're discover you'd be a winner. At a million dollars, that's one one hundredth. So you're like a seven month old baby. You don't really think, you know, you're running races. So we tell them growth at all costs out the window. Uh, and then the last thing we tell them is, especially if they're selling uh, software that they're selling to software companies. Do not assume the retention that you've had is the retention that you will have. It's a big shock to a lot of software companies this year who last year had like 170% NRR and now have like 80% GDR, which is pretty existential and pretty painful. And so make the assumption that if you're trying to sell to any buyer, they all have to get more efficient regardless of the industry. They're going to scrutinize each and every dollar. And so I, I want companies to think within their plan, where are they today too much of a vitamin from a customer perspective? And what do they need to be a painkiller? And then what then therefore are they doing about that? And are there investments towards that? It's not just, you know, put something in generative AI and spit up a new slide. So that's sort of a that's high level we're telling companies about 2024. Brett, how hard has it been for founders to make that pivot? I mean, the last seven, eight years, right? Money kind of grew on trees. This is a hard right turn. And a lot of founders just being in my seat and venture for 15 years working with them haven't seen this before. Has it been super hard? Like, have you had to say it three times in different ways or are people kind of getting it? I think it. the hardest part is that we wrongly as an industry defined a point of success to a founder when you were getting your next funding round. As opposed, you didn't start this, you know, if you're, if you're a great founder, you start a business, we talk to them because they can't imagine doing something else. They can't go to sleep at night, right? They have to go do this. 
And then if it's a business, it needs to make money at some time. So I have to start this. It has to make money at some time. So what's the path to there? And then there are levels of success and, and check marks that gives you validation that then says I should invest more money. Um, that kind of got thrown out the window. It was all about, oh, I've raised this money and then I need to do this to get to the next rabbit money. And, and those metrics were primarily driven by growth, right? If you were triple, triple, double, double, awesome. If you're not triple, triple, double, you're a loser. That's like Talladega Nights. Like if you're not first, you're, you're last. Remember, and his dad's like, well, there's second and there's third and fourth. So I think that's been hard. Um, I would say for companies that are struggling, it's easy. Right? Like you say, there's no more money. You need to get to cash flow break even. It's a pretty straightforward conversation. Right? Uh, and some founders are better than others at making those decisions. Um, I think the hard part within that is this is where you figure out how resilient and gritty the founder is. Although what is interesting is that when they do that, they basically realize constraint-based decisions, which is, Nolan, you're a little cuter and younger than Katie and I are, but that's kind of how it used, kind of how it used to be in business. Hey. Where like you had constraint-based decisions where you had to make or decisions. If I have this amount of money, how would I prioritize where I would spend it? And where do I think I would get the best return? Um, what they find is once they get into that or based constraint based decision, it's a little, it's a bit liberating. Um, whereas in the world of like, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, it's like a bad Benny Hill skit, you know, thought mm -hmm. the jackety sax playing in the background. Um, it's almost stress relieving in a way. I will say where it's harder is where I have companies that are winning are doing the triple, triple, double, double. Um, and what I try to do for those type of companies is I'm like, okay, for the next year or two, you're going to win. I start to think about 10 years out and think about what is it for them to be an iconic company. And when you try to explain, look, if we go look at public companies and how they're valued and the success of most of the VC uh, funded IPOs, and they haven't been great um, because as their growth rate slips, they can't deliver profitability and, you know, it, it ain't great. And so uh, getting them to think about the economic shape of their business and addressing it now has been a bit harder. Interesting. Brett, a lot of our listeners actually don't understand the economics of how a VC works. Can you talk to us about how you think about the death rate of startups and what you expect normal death rates to be versus what that's been in the last couple of years? Yeah. Um, the reason I was asking was it's easy to do a broad brush with all venture capitalists. Like do all venture capitalists want triple, triple, double or nothing? No. I mean, there's plenty of funds that invest in certain sectors and certain level of growth, et cetera, et cetera. Look, the way venture generally works is you have to understand the investors, which are LPs, which are primarily when you get to a second or third fund, it's probably institutional investors. These are pension funds, um, you know, uh, colleges, uh, et cetera, et cetera, retirement funds. And they look at venture capital as an asset class um, from a beta perspective as much higher risk, but much higher returns. Right? And for them, it's a diversification play. And so when they give money to venture capitalists, they are hoping over a 10-year period to get a 3x return on their money. So in a venture firm, depending on where you enter, the reality is when we look to invest at the seed stage, we have to believe this company can get to $100 million in revenue. And we'll invest in 25 to 30 companies in a fund. Of course, very few of them will get to $100 million in revenue, but we have to have that belief. And sort of along the way, maybe a couple will, and they'll return the vast majority of the fund. So it's very much about the power laws of the fund. And so what that creates is an interesting dynamic in venture and founders, and this is something to work through, which is, in theory, you want to push a founder as much as possible to pressure test them to see if they can be that. And that's where you should spend your time and then your incremental money. Um, and then if a company, if it fails, that's perfectly fine. Because what you don't want to do is spend time with the people that are going to fail. Now, here's the grand irony venture as a former operator. The people that are amazing don't need your help. 
where you make all your you make all your money on the people that don't need your help. You make all your reputation with the founders that really need help, that maybe only get a 1x exit. Maybe they get some money back. Maybe they find a home somewhere or a one and a half or two X exit. Um, now, from a failure rate perspective, I think there's been this artificial thing uh, in the last couple of years that, oh, you raise money and then the A is guaranteed, et cetera. Um, the general math is, I don't know, like 5% of companies raise a seed. Of the 5% of companies that raise a seed, maybe like 15% raise an A, and then a 50% raise an A, like 15% raise a B. And so it's it's very little. Now, one thing at Bonfire we pride ourselves is that we have like a 70% graduation rate from C to A. Now, I could ask myself, is that a good thing? That may mean we're not taking enough risk. Maybe there's too much confirmation bias. But the reality is if you start a startup or you join an early start startup, you need to realize that unless you're ready to put in sort of superhuman effort, or you're able to sort of trip the light fantastic, the company's going to fail. It's going to fail. And in the short term, and for it, and this is the conversation Katie and I have had about employees and what's happened in the last seven years. And, you know, how do we get people to realize there are many jobs in the world, but startups aren't for them. But if you want to be an iconic company and go public, you have to go hard and you have to decide if that's for you. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. Your co-host, Nolan, here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit lattice.com slash HR Heretics today. That's lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators, they'll express interest, and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire, and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. I have a question. I mean, you're a opinionated fellow, which is why I love working with you. When founders tell you, hey, we're eight people bonfire, I'm going to be the CEO of this place when we're 2,000 people. I'm going to take it from C to A to E to F. One day, maybe there'll be an N through public and I'm going to stay. What do you tell them when they say that? Is that possible? If so, how? Well, it's not a conversation we have. We're, we're trying to court them, right? We're not having a conversation about when we're going, if we're going to get rid of them. Look, I think the first thing is it's always easier if the founder can scale because there's nothing that replaces the soul of a founder. It, they just doesn't, right? Um, but the reality is, look, one of the pitches we have when we say why bonfire is it's seed. We tell them seed day is fucking hard. It's so hard, right? Like you have two journeys you have to go on. One, you got to go from like, oh, I got a couple of customers and some code, et cetera, to like a somewhat of a scalable business where you can explain to a series A investor, I've got something. Like you have to prove that my first motion works, this product, this buyer, et cetera. And, and then the second one is you as an individual have to grow as a leader. And the company can only grow as fast as the CEO. That, that, that's it. 
Um, and it's hard. And now it also leads to interesting things. The problem is a lot of founders think, oh, I've got to scale super early and they move themselves early from deals and the rest of it. And then it's a shit show. We're like, no, 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 no. We like the fact that you are micromanaging in, in everything. You've seen this, KD, but um, when you have a competent CEO who early on they're in the decisions, we love that about them. They have the command of the business. But if they're the bottleneck because they haven't hired a team that they trust and they haven't figured out the dynamic of the relationship between them, are they an alpha, are they a beta and the leader and figured out a way to manage that, um, that's a problem. Second is as they grow, and this is harder for um, our INTJs, you know, not the ENTJs. Myers-Briggs. Uh, Myers-Briggs, sorry. I've done, the, I've done them for years hoping they'll say something different. They're always like, uh, you're driver, driver, asshole, asshole. I'm like, come on. <laughs> uh, come on. So let me do embrace, Brett. Absolutely. Oh, but the, I did the new millennial one, which is great. Uh, strength finders, where it tells you your strengths and then gives you only the weaknesses within the context yes. of your strengths. You'll pay attention. Maybe if, Yes. Um, second, they have to be amazing internal communicators. As you get larger and larger, like the number one job is to be a chief repeater officer, right? You have got to be constantly laying out the vision, the plan, why we're doing stuff and doing that. Uh, and people struggle with that. Um, they struggle with being narrators and communicating that. They struggle with consistency and they struggle with the right level of overconfidence, but also vulnerable candor. Um, and then the third one, which is really hard because we spend so much time saying in the early days, your first 10 leaders are really important because they're going to be the, the carriers of the culture torches down the road. That's just bullshit. I think what they all said was realizing the team that got me to one phase is likely not the one at the next. And that's okay. You didn't let them down. They didn't let you down. It's okay. Now you can't have your entire leadership team, you know, be mercenaries hired from outside. But I think those are the three things that we constantly work with founders on. Um, and then I know you do this, Katie. What I do a lot with founders is I look, I get real with founders and I love them, but try to get them to be cognizant of where they're strong and where they're weak and uh, make sure that as they hire and they build out their team, they are hiring people who are strong where they're weak. One, um, that builds a better organization. Two, it brings to some extent, except for the most psychopathic CEOs, calmer leadership because they don't, they don't, it's okay that they don't know that because they have somebody who's great at that. And so they can lean into where they're strong and into their vibe. Those are the areas that I find. Brett, can you, uh, I'm, I'm really curious in this conversation around talent planning, especially at the executive level. Can you lift the veil for our audience on where you involve yourself as it relates to a founder and talent planning? And when do you talk about the executive team and how do closed door sessions work as it relates to like those types of questions? Well, early on, there's like eight people, right? So I'm trying to figure out what our priorities for the next couple of years are. And within those priorities, we're talking about just FTEs, you know, like, you got two developers, you know, turns out you got one rep. Turns out if you don't have great product and nobody's selling it, I'm not an expert. You don't need to read a lot of blogs, but I can promise you when you get to the operating plan, it's not going to be that interesting, you know? So early on, it's what are the priorities that, and in the early days, you can't afford to hire a great leadership team. You can't even afford to hire a full leadership team. And so early on, it's trying to figure out which hat makes sense for the founder to continue to wear? And then what do we need to hire? And then very much involved in what type of hire, what skill set we're looking for, and then work with the founder. The hardest, the weirdest thing, like when I would interview with startups, there's this weird dance where you go to a startup. And what I want to know is, as a candidate is like, all right, what's screwed up here? What must be true? What do they need? And then what the founder wants to know with this candidate, it's really hard now, right? Because everybody everybody jumps every two years. Like, what the hell? Like, look, this person went to four companies that never did anything and they never did something. Okay, I'm, you know, my guidance to founders, do not hire somebody where their first win is going to be at your company. That's not for a startup. But there's this weird dance. And the founder wants to know where this person is good. Does that match what I need and where they're weak? Is that Okay. 
And no one has that vulnerable conversation. So I'm very specific around a very transparent, vulnerable on both sides hiring process. Um, so that's early days. As it gets to leadership, um, you know, I have a good fortune having been to, at working at Siebel and Salesforce, et cetera, and knowing what a terrific leader is. Um, I think the hardest transition is in the early days, people want to find somebody that scales. But up to like 10 million in revenue, I don't want scalers. Scalers basically take somebody else's playbook and scale it. Less than 10 million, we're just making shit up over here. We don't have repeatability. There's no recipe. So what I tell founders to do is hire mechanics. People that are going to come in and help figure this stuff out and are comfortable with failure, right? Because like, how do you figure stuff out in life? You only really learn when stuff doesn't go wrong, right? Like, oh, I burnt my hand on the thing. I shouldn't do that anymore. And then you, t okay, we did that. That didn't work. Oh, we did that. That's Salesforce, you think there was blogs we were reading? No, we go to a room, we'd be like, all right, here's a decision. We have two paths. Okay, what do we think? Okay, let's try this. How we know if it would measure it work? Let's do it. Like 60 days later, is like, how did that work? That was terrible. All right, let's not fucking do that again. You know, write that down. And then we'd be like, oh, that worked. Let's do more of it. That was the genius playbook of SaaS at Salesforce. So I, I tell them to hide for mechanics. And then as we get later, it was sort of interesting, Nolan. You're friends with Danny. And he had his first board meeting in person. And I show up. And, you know, get up at four o'clock in the morning to fly to Chicago. You know, it's because I live in Santa Barbara. Woe is me. Uh, woe is me. Um, and I, I see his engineering leader. I'm like, hey, am I going to see you at dinner tonight? And he's like, no, I wasn't invited. So I called Danny. I'm like, Danny, who's coming to the board dinner tonight? Oh, the board members and me. I'm like, what is the point of that? I'm going to, VCs, I mean, there's plenty of opportunities VCs drink expensive wine together. The point of the board meeting is we want to engage with you, but we know you, but we want to engage with your management team, one, to get the next level detail, and two, to help guide you to understand how aligned they are and how competent they are. And if you don't invite them to the board dinner, that's where we loosen them up and they realize we bleed, we're humans as well, right? Right? Like, you know, you'll get the random board member that'll like throw out libertarian weird shit that's unacceptable or talk about their house in the south of France. Okay, fine. Like, okay, stop. But, and then I said, well, okay, how about the board meeting tomorrow? I'm going to bring him in one by one. What? Like it's a firing line? He's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, what are you doing? So I said, for now, next board dinner, I'm not coming to your board dinner unless your leadership team is there. And he did adjust for the board meeting where we had the open session close session with the CEO to talk and then bring the entire leadership team in because look, we're not here to prosecute the management team. We're here to just understand what's going on because we're not in the muck. We're a level up. Look to understand is the team aligned or is with one person saying doesn't seem aligned with the other or in sometimes be like, that's not a, that person we do judge like that person's not going to get you there, right? At every stage, there are sad conversations where you hired somebody who was great for 18 months and the founder gets on the phone and is like, ah, and what I always said about you, KD, but like founders are like, oh, I don't really know about this person. Da, 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 da. And I'm always like, if your gut is telling you this is not the right leader, they're not the right leader. It's time to move on, right? Totally. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. You said something that I love. Board meetings. We judge. We're judging. And I love that because you are and you should. And executives are always like, are they judging me in here? Yes, they are judging you in there. And we have a lot of HR, chief people officers, HR leaders, founders, investors on the line. Talk to Talk to us about, you know, a lot of these issues and challenges with scale and even just day by day has to do with people. Um, and organization and communication. How do you know the right things are happening from a board meeting with that people leader and that founder, right? Because you're on a lot of boards. You can't go deep in every company. What are what are the signs that you're seeing in that board meeting or other that you know that company has the right people leader or not? Um, it's interesting. Uh, my perspective is 
there are two types of people where I can figure out pretty quickly if they're amazing. A founder and a CHRO. Like within one minute, I'm like, I'm from first board meeting with KD, and I'm like, I'm like, what? Who is that? Who is this? Who is this alien that's flown in talking business, firm in her answers? I was like, mm-mm-mm. Because they're rare. So um, how do I know it's working? Um, well, I'm a, remember, I'm more involved at most companies than at the board level. Like, There's usually not a surprise at the board. Now, on Pendo, for example, I'm an independent, you know, but I'm in the Slack group. I watch the stuff going on. Um, how do I know that we have what a great people organization, great people leader, um, now I'm going to reflect back on when I ran organizations. Um, I think the largest probably three, 4,000 people. Uh, one, the employees we have are heavily engaged in busting their ass. That's the number one thing. Uh, two performance management is nails. Poor performers up, top performers up. Um, uh, no drama around compensation. We are not peanut buttering crap, right? Top performers get way overpaid. Uh, underperformers are exited from the business and middle performers are encouraged to become top performers or they're going to become bottom performers. Uh, the recruiting funnel and process is great. It is very hard to get hired in my organization. Um, employee communication is transparent, consistent, and the right level of like who and candor, right? Like that's hard to do. Uh, and I think ultimately, because um, any org I ever ran, you know, like at Salesforce or others, uh, I had I did have an HR person working for me at Smart Recruiters, but like at a large org, what was interesting was the HR VP who reported to our business units worked for the CHRO, but they were on my leadership team. They were in my meetings. They were all offsites, et cetera. Uh, and so for, because then the, you have to have context. Um, so for me, my managers would think of HR as their job and not something to outsource right? The HR business partner is there to help them. But like, if we don't hire somebody, they missed their hiring goal. I'm not firing the recruiter. I'm firing the manager. If, you know, if the team sucks and we haven't managed performance, I'm not firing HR. I'm firing the manager. Um, and so my my manager thinks of HR as their job and not something to outsource. And they can't imagine doing their job without sort of their HR business partner. That's when I'm running an org. Um, it's a little harder at the board meeting, obviously, other than if there's like a kick-ass CHRO just shows up like a cowboy sheriff and just says it like it is. I'm like, oh, I like that person. <laughs> that is so good, Brett. Um, I love the idea of bringing the CHRO to all of your, your leadership meetings. Um, I also love the, it's the manager's job not the HRBP or the head of recruiting's job. Like they're there to enable you. And I think that's a sign for our listeners of like, if you're getting the finger pointed at you to do the manager's job, that's a red flag for you and something that yeah, you should Nolan, be highly aware of. But Nolan, it's often HR's fault. When I left Salesforce, I went oh, to go say sell. more, please. I went to sell to HR and recruiting. I would go in and show them this app. And I'm like, look. Instead of you having to do all this work, the manager has a login and then the manager is responsible for working their funnel. The manager is responsible for coming up with the job description. The manager is responsible for um, coming up with the right uh, interview criteria. And it's on the manager and they track. And I promise you not, seven out of 10 times is like, I don't want to give the manager that level of control. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? So, Right. You know, yep. it's not totally. like, like if you Take and HR, think you, yeah, it's the manager's job. Uh, I think we're going to get back to that in sort of this new world of efficiency and, you know, and delivery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've asked others, I'm curious your opinion on this the last couple of years, et cetera. Do you think HR leaders, founders, companies have gone a little soft? I know with this move to efficiency, Etc. There's been more nails, more pressure. 
around bottom line. Do you think we've all gotten a little soft the past five years? You asked if HR has gotten soft. I think that's a little unfair. I think companies have gotten soft, um, but I think that's changing back dramatically. Look, I think it's important to understand context. I'm older than most podcast presenters. I try to stay pretty and young. In my career, there is a seven-year boom and bust in technology. And so by year five, it, it gets a little frothy. There's more money, da-da-da-da-da. We got more people. It gets a little softer, da 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 da. But then there's, but then the market crashes, and the frauds all go home. The fraud investors, fraud employees, all go home. We went 14 years in a zero interest rate environment. So, I'm just trying to give the overall context as to why we may have become a bit soft. Um, but definitely, I think orgs became a bit soft, um, and you know. What is interesting, though, is I think why orgs became soft, and I think this is relevant to HR executives and business leaders, is let's just call a spade a spade. We can talk about work-life balance all we want, but if you're trying to build iconic software companies that are going to go do the impossible, what are you trying to do? You're trying to hire people who make terrible work-life balance decisions. That's what we're trying to do. But then the question is, how do you, how does that happen? And they don't resent you for it. There's this conversation we had last night. Josh was, I was up till 2.30 in the morning putting these, this slide presentation you were giving for executive offsite and you were telling me this imagery. There was a presentation where um, I was running applications and the platform team wanted to uh, uh, be AWS. And I was like, we said an Oracle, we can't do this. And I was trying to convince them to be a metadata platform. So it was an executive offsite where Obama was running for president for the first time. And so I had memorized all of his speeches and then translated it to like, instead of blue states and red states, you know, app platform. Um, I even created an attack ad against me uh, with a video. We had buttons and the rest of it. And, and it was an insane level of work. And these people did an insane level of work to 2.30, but they loved it because they knew what I was trying to get across. And so what it gets back to is, you know, I don't read a lot of business books, but you know, what I would give to every first time manager or second time manager is Daniel Pink's drive, which is what makes, and I assume maybe you've read this book, but it starts out with a very interesting story. Sweden used to give the most blood in the world, donate the blood, and then they had a shortage of blood. So they started paying Swedes to donate blood and all the blood donations stopped. Why? Because people did not give blood for money. They gave it for another intrinsic motivation. And so how do I get people to run through walls? Well, what do humans need beyond making some money? One, they have a need for mastery. Am I getting better at my craft? Two, humans have a need for being self-directed. So if I'm getting better at my craft, will you give me more responsibility and not micromanage me as enough? Okay, those are good. The third one is linking, okay, the job that I'm doing where I'm getting mastery and self-directed, does it actually matter at this company? Like if I went away tomorrow, would it matter? And the fourth, which is much harder, especially for software companies, because 98% of them just don't matter. Why does this company matter? And I think where we got soft is we forgot that equation. And we forgot that you need to line all of those up to get people to work hard. Um, and then of course, work from home and the rest of it, et cetera. But I would say that need, Daniel Pink wrote that book about 15 years ago, is stronger than today because individuals, younger ones especially, respect flexibility. Actually, older ones, when you start to have your first child, I'm joking the other day, my wife was like, your employee gets six months off for paternity leave. I think you had two days, right? Uh, and she didn't say it like, Boo is us. She's like, how the hell do these people get six months off? I just had that conversation last week with someone and we're four months. So you can yeah. imagine. Six. Well, she also said to me, like, what would I do with you for six months? You were completely worthless <laughs> to me when the kids were. <laughs> She's like, that would have been worthless. I would make you go away for six months. But, <laughs> but like we do respect flexibility. Uh, and I think, and I think individuals are trying to get more meaning for their, from their job. And I think unfortunately, you know, uh, there's this false set of expectations for kids by the time they get to college to know what they want to do in life. You know, where I was like, 
I don't know, I got a job. And then like I did that job for five years. I became a senior manager. And then I went to business school. And then I was made a leader and I, a director. And I was terrible for two years. Uh, and then by, you know, by 30, I'd kind of figure it out. So I think, yes, we've gotten soft. But I think we've gotten lazy in terms of what it means as a company to motivate individuals and drive them hard. Actually, not drive, not drive them hard. Motivate them for themselves to drive themselves hard. How do we get people to love working hard and to appreciate it? Like, I think about Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams. They work their asses off, maybe more than anyone on the planet, to be great at their craft. Yet, when we think about working in technology, if you work that hard, it's almost like you get negative connotations. Why do you think that is? Where are you getting negative? Con- I love those people. What do you mean? Where's the negative connotations coming from? I it's on LinkedIn, Brett. I mean, there's people want to work forty hours a week. There's a soundbite that working above forty hours a week means that you don't have work life balance. Look, I think at the end of the day, forget the hours. Focus on the output. What are you accomplishing? Like, I never cared how many hours somebody worked. I cared, did they get it done? And was it great? You know, it's funny. I I get the parents of kids who grew up with my kids who want to get into business. They, Will you give my son advice is coming out of college? And the kid will be like... Yeah, I was going to take his consulting job, but it required travel and 60 hours of work. And I said, Johnny, whatever his name is, I'm the wrong guy to talk to. You will bust your ass. You are 22 or 23 years old. You have no idea what you want to do. You need to go work really hard, and that will let you know, are you good at this? And do you like this? And et cetera. Like, so I'm the wrong person to ask from that front. Now, I'll tell you what I used to do as as a leader. And Mark did this. He was very good at Salesforce. Um, You're going to bust your ass for 12 weeks a quarter. I pull my leadership team aside and I'd say, pull up your schedules. Okay, every one of you is going away for a week. When? And and I'm like, like, no, no, you are going away for a week. Let's plan it. Uh, Well, I'm going for three days. No, you're not going away for three days. Takes like that's worthless. You are going away for a week. And if you get on email and you get on, we didn't have Slack at the time, you're not getting your bonus or I'm going to fire you. You're going to take your family away because it's going to take you two days to unwind, three days to be present, and then two days to be stressed out about going to work. But you need to get out of here and clear your head. And invariably, when they would come back, they were refreshed um, and had new ideas. It also was selfish for me because it sounds really cool, but the issue is that if you were in the grind all the time, you can't pull your head up. And so even though I told them, don't send me email and the rest of it, they're clearly thinking about work. Um, It allows them to pull away. So look, I think it's about work-life balance, but everybody makes their own decisions. Um, But I don't, there's no iconic software company where people aren't busting their ass. It just doesn't exist. Reminds me of the first company when we moved to, you know, unlimited vacation, no policy. We had to ironically put in a damn policy because no one was taking the vacation. So, you know, it's funny. Yeah, we, it's funny. We did it as a moment of dignity, um, but people weren't taking advantage of it. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. Um, so it was a policy was, on top of a no policy to it take weird, it. It was, well, we definitely wanted to take it because we still have to accrue for it. Brett, I have one. I know we're running up against time. I have one quick question. I think no one wants to pivot to advice or lessons real quick. Um, we talked to to a lot of folks around the relationship between the CHRO and the founder and how that how important that is, you know, for for company health and scale and all those things. How how do you create that? Hmm. It's hard. It is hard. Because there's some preconceived notions about the role of HR, especially for inexperienced leaders, where the assumption of HR is to make sure one, I don't get into trouble. Two is to set up sort of these administrative functions like recruiting and benefits. It takes two to tango. So I'll start on the CHRO side. Uh, Look, the CHO needs to be a great CHRO. And people have asked you, what's a great CHRO? Um, Like at a board meeting, like how did I know you rocked Katie from the board meeting? 
It's like, one, you know the business inside and out. You're a business person first and foremost. Um, two, you can communicate the challenges and opportunities of the business as it relates to our personnel. Three, uh, you can, you are very good at looking at the vital few things we need to do as opposed to useless many. Um, they take, you take accountability for hits and misses. And then the CEO relies on them innately. So let's get back to that. Right. It's interesting. I think a great CHRO and a great chief legal officer should be the CEO's consigliaries. Um, on the CHRO side, they should know you better than most. I used to have CHROs. It was very funny when I would present at a large meeting and you invited me on this podcast to be spicy. I don't know if I've been spicy. Yes, enough, please. <laughs> but I would go to present and they had this hand signal in the back and I'd watch their eyes and it was for like, it'd be like this, like one lane. And then they'd be like dotted line and then she, they, she, she could see where I was going and she would hold up like double line. Do not cross. Do not say that. So there are these videos of me like, no, no, and I start riffing like, oh, okay. Well, I can't say that shit. So, um, and so I think, I think if I'm a CEO on their side, uh, and so look, the CEO can't be an asshole, can't be a psychopath, um, has to be very clear about the business priorities are, um, and take very seriously the evolution of the company from a personnel stuff. That's how I think about it. For sure. Yeah. And I don't know if you agree, Nolan or, or Brett, but being in venture for 15 years, I've worked with usually always multiple founders at one company, not just one. And there is a level of empathy and appreciation for sometimes them being psycho. I mean, that's who they are. That's why they are brilliant. That's why they can build these things. And I think a lot of HR folks can lead with the thing first. Well, they're not letting me do this program. They're not. It's like their brains are wired in a very unique way. And just to appreciate that and start there and then work backwards from that, I think is something that's really important to be in this role and live with these people. It's back to strength finders. If you go to a CEO and, and understand that like, Part of that genius of a founder is it's insanity, right? Like it's cre it's crazy, it's chaotic creation. <clears throat> and if you so talk I work with them, Nolan, and you build it, and you yeah. talk to him, and you say, "Look, this is amazing. This is amazing." But out of that amazingness, it creates these challenges. I'm not asking you to change that because that's what fires us up. But we kind of need to do this, you know. Like when Frank Slootman went on a podcast and said diversity doesn't matter, and then like a day or two later, his HR person came to him and said, "Hey, Frank, you're amazing. Your book is amazing, but you know, maybe the diversity doesn't matter line was inappropriate." And even Frank came back and was like, "All right, that I was taken out of whatever that might be." Um, but I agree, and it's hard. But look, if you're in CHRO, if there's one executive that doesn't is not empathetic to what is good and what is bad, then you're then HR is not is not for you as a career. All right, Brett, I want to get to our rapid fire question segment, which we call talent rules. So we ask every guest these questions. The first is, who's the best hire you've ever seen? And, and from your lens as a VC, someone that's like transformed a company that when they showed up, the company changed. Now, most of my career, right, I've worked for two billionaires that used to work for Larry Ellison. And in those businesses, as successful as I thought I was or everybody else, it didn't matter. That founder was, that founder was on their way. And deep product market fit. Yes. Yes. Um, in regards to startups, I thought about this question, but I didn't want to name this individual. It tends to be, the first great head of product because you've got a founder who thinks they're doing product and we do this and we do that, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the first great head of product who thinks about, look at the end of the day for this person, this is the jobs that need to be done. And here's how, and how we're going to do it better and can paint a multi-year path towards that and then organize the company around that. Um, it's really unifying. Um, and then it's the first great head of sales. Honestly, what I always say to entrepreneurs, you're not a, you're not a real entrepreneur until you've fired your first three head of sales. Like <laughs> it takes, you're just not like this idea that like, Oh, I got rid of my head of sales. Like, Oh, you too. You know, 
It's like a, it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Hello, yes, I'm, it's a club. I'm an alcoholic, you know. So I generally it's those. Now outside of that, it's some crazy person sort of in operations or product marketing, et cetera, who basically realizes if you are a software company, you have to take a stance. You are for something or you're against something. And then start to outline these are the we're against this, and these are all the people who support what we're against, and we must take them out, and sort of build, if you will, that institutional muscle and fervor around that. Um, so that's how I think about it. Love that. And then, what's your favorite interview question that gets you the best signal on candidates? I love that one. So what I always do, and I set them up for this. Like, tell me about a boss like that you loved and you respect. Uh, get his name. What did you you know love and respect? Well, he's great. How long has it been we work with him? I said, all right, so I'm going to call Jill tomorrow. And I'm going to ask Jill. We'll get through the pleasantries. I'm going to say, Jill, I need two one-sentence answers. Can you give me one sentence on what they would say? One sentence about what's great about this employee. So I asked the candidate, what would they say? But I'm only really setting it up for this. And this is after like a five-minute dialogue. And if I ask them, in your performance reviews, uh, et cetera, what was the one thing you were always giving them feedback? If your reviews were like, they're great, but, what was that but? What did they have to get much better at to achieve their career goals? What did they say? And people struggle with that. And so what I'm really looking for there is self-awareness around where they're strong and where they're weak and their willingness to be vulnerable to tell me that. You know, the, oh, if I get the, my boss said I work too hard. <laughs> my boss went on LinkedIn and wrote a blog post about me working more than 40 hours a week. Then I'm not, I'm not hiring that person. My favorite is I don't delegate enough. Yeah. So that's mine. What is yours, Katie? Quickly, before you guys kick me to the curb. So I, I do ask, I say, hey, you know, I'm a big fan of 360s and, you know, getting getting feedback, whatnot. If I ask 30 of your friends, former peers, bosses, direct reports, cross-functional stakeholders, and I, I would have 30 conversations. I love to chat. What would they tell me? What would they tell me? This is their superpower. You need them for this. And what would they tell me? You're going to have to work on this and help them with X. And I, maybe it's unfair to say, give me one sentence, because then I'm asking them to be concise as well. Uh, anyways, that's, that's my favorite interview question to use. Uh, this was awesome, Brett. Thank you, as always, for the candor and the entertainment. My had a great Brett, time. This was so good. So good. Right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Kelly. So Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Twitter, and also the CEO of Block, formerly known as Square, just decided to kill performance reviews at the company. And they did a couple of things and I'll break it down and then I want to get into it with you. So he said, performance reviews actually don't help us get better. He said, performance should be continuously evaluated and feedback should not be queued up for later. I don't think anybody disagrees with that, but we'll get into it. Uh, he also said that they're still doing employee ratings, but they've simplified it down to three ratings, which is basically exceeds, meets, and below. And then they're also ending pips. And what he said about that was they don't actually work consistently, and they often feel way too late. They don't push the manager to give feedback in a timely manner. Manager in a manner, uh, yeah. it's lazy and often surprising that we can avoid with direct and consistent feedback. So I'd love, I have a lot of takes on this. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your take on what Block is doing right now with performance. For sure. I mean, this is, this is something, oh my, where? This has been a thing for at least my 24 years in HR. It's been, you know, up and down and left and right. You have Microsoft, right? Years ago with big announcements around reviews. No one's really figured this out. And frankly, I'm not sure that that there is one right answer. I really I don't. That. Totally. That, and then it will change, right? Things shift and change. New generations come up. Like, I, I, I don't think that the right answer is to like search for and declare 
I totally agree. I don't think that there's one right answer for sure, but it kind of seems like there's just a bunch of bad answers today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I remember the days when I was at, at Yahoo and I was young and I was writing my own like lumbering annual once totally. a year freaking performance review and SAP success factors, no less. Um, and it was brutal. I mean, that, that's definitely the wrong answer. So maybe, maybe it's easier to start with the wrong, wrong answers <laughs> back into it. <laughs> well, but in, in all seriousness, I, I think that we've been starting with the activities, right? You start with the why. So let's, let's create the answer based on what we want at the company that we're at and the time that we're in. And yes. everyone starts with the form, the cadence, like, Let's not start with the activities. And I think it will lead to a better answer that's right for each company. I loved, so I go back to our episode with Steve. And if anyone wants a really hot take on <laughs> performance reviews, go listen to the episode with Steve Cadigan, who is the former CHRO of LinkedIn. And he he told us a story about all of the executives hating the performance review process. And Steve was like, great, like let's throw it out. And people were like, what the fuck? Like, what do you mean throw it out? And it's so weird that we get attached to these things that we've invented. But once we start doing them in a regular cadence, throwing them out feels so radical when it's just, if we just yeah. run all these things like an experiment and look at it yeah. and it's not working. Here's my take. I think the current annual performance review process that is copied by 90% of companies optimizes for shitty managers and lawyers that are worried about liability. And so like the lawyers that are worried about liability, I just think like, don't even listen to these people. Like they shouldn't be a part of the conversation. We should tell the lawyers, this is what we're doing. Help us make that happen. But I don't think that they should actually be part of the design process because they're always going to optimize for safety. So don't include them until it's really baked. Then bring them in and say, great, how does this look from your end? So yeah. that's how I think about the lawyers. What, what, the shitty wait. managers, the, only the, thing the about shitty managers, though, Kelly, is like, this is the thing that I, I think is the reason we have this process is because we use annual performance reviews as a backstop to make sure managers are delivering feedback. And I just feel like that problem can be solved a thousand other ways that are more productive for the manager and for the employee. Yeah. On the lawyer side, I will push back. Lawyers can actually be helpful. It's kind of like HR people. There are shitty HR people that you don't want to include in anything. And there are HR people that actually help you get there faster and think of shortcuts or ways to bend the rules. So it depends on the lawyer, man. Like, because of course, in these early stage companies, it is a bloodbath. I mean, there could be a hundred lawyers in a company if you don't do it right that still can't clean up the mess. So, th there, there is that versus here's what we're doing. Help us get there because that can be a recipe for disaster. So, I think it's a balance. I think it's a balance. I do. Um, but let's let's talk about pips and reviews. I do yeah. agree they are crutches and forcing functions, backstops, whatever you want to call it, to elicit behavior that we want, which is feedback and direct feedback on a regular yeah. basis. Okay. That is a skill that, that a lot of people, frankly, don't have at all. So I do un understand that you need some kind of training wheels depending on the situation. Because that's how we work, right? You can't just get rid of them because they're stupid and shitty and expect it to happen. That's that's yeah. the chasm that you have to like figure out how to how to cross. And maybe that's like you said, iterative steps. Maybe it's phases. It's not all or nothing or answer one or answer two. Maybe it's answer one for six months. Then we're going to go to answer two. Maybe it's answer one for this cohort of people. Then we're going to go graduate them. Like we haven't really experiment with different different structures and companies depending on the segment of people it's so, all or nothing i actually have i've tried it a few times i also tested uh 15.5 back in the day which is basically just like a continuous feedback tool i found it amazing but what yeah. i learned is is when we tested it with the engineering team they fucking hated it and they felt like it was a bigger tax on them and the reason why is because they were still thinking well i still have to do this annual review at the end of the year and so I, I do think if you're going to do continuous feedback, you have to go all in on that path 
Or if you're just going to do like the once a year thing, like the trade-offs are nobody's going to get feedback until it's probably too late. And so either way, there is a tax associated, but I view that tax as healthy to ensure that employees are getting feedback. Now, the the biggest point I want to make, I think that there's so many managers that are managing people and they shouldn't be fucking near management. And so it, it doesn't matter the amount of training you can give these people. Like you could sink tens of thousands of dollars into somebody. And the reality is they're not cut out to be a manager. And Correct. we just want to force these people to be managers or we create these career paths that basically the only way you can ascend is to be a manager. And the reality is, is most people aren't cut out for management. I always say everybody wants to be a manager until you are one. And it's like, then it sucks. Yes. And so I, I honestly think going back to our conversation with Tomash, I think that the future is going to look a lot more like very large spans of control to where today you typically have call it like somewhere between four and seven direct reports. I think the future is going to look a lot more like you have like 15 to 20 direct reports and then a hell of a lot more ICs who are actually yeah. doing work and not focused on the bullshit of managing yeah. people. Well, yes. So small spans of control, very structured management, a lot of rules, right? That's almost like school. That's like the teacher and the child, whatever it is. So if if you have great hires at the IC level that are adults, I don't care if they're entry level or senior, They're, they're adults, they're responsible, they're achievers, they're taking learning upon themselves. They're not blaming their manager HR for career development. Like they're responsible adults that are doing great work. They ask questions, they raise their hand, they say no, or I disagree. Like all of those things. Then you have an adult as a manager who is talking like we talk right every day. I didn't like this. Why did you do this? Right. Direct, which is hard for people to do. But if you have that mixture, you're golden. Like, and imagine that with 10 people and you're one of those managers, you don't need a bunch of pips and backstops and legal phrases. And it's just, but that, that might be, as you call me a utopian state, (laughs) like that doesn't exist. But that is the, that is the goal, right? That is the goal, at least for me in cultures. I try to build teams. I try to build Absolutely teams agree. I try to work with. And it just kind of makes all that easier. If you don't have that mistrust, anxiety, like lack of direct feedback. Oh, it just now, sucks. Now it's, you've it's just the throw, worst. It's the worst working it's, environment. It's the worst. It's and the it worst. elicits where you got to throw that shit down to a pip and it's got to be structured. Believe me, I was at Intuit a long time ago. My my job, like my first like HRBP job, entry level kind of thing. I literally wordsmith pips like half you were, the day. You were, head, you were head of CYA? I was head of pips. And <laughs> frankly, I was pretty good at it. But it's the phrasing and the words. And when you're doing that stuff, that is a lagging indicator that something went wrong upstream. So let's solve for those upstream. Things. Exactly. And, and if you do that, you can use less structure downstream. Totally. I couldn't agree more. The, the one thing I, I, one of the things I learned at DoorDash. So we had, we did this, the thing that everyone does, which is you take your best ICs and then you promote them to managers. And then six months later, these people are fucking miserable and you're not getting as much output out of your team. And you're just like, what happened here? Yeah. So we took a step back and what we did was we created uh, dual paths on the career path track. So like ICs were paid as much as managers. So there wasn't salary uh, discrepancies between the, the, the two different tracks. And the other thing we did is we created kind of this like intermediate step between the two tracks mm-hmm. And we called it a lead. And the idea was, look, everybody is curious about management. Like that is true. Like if you've been an IC, you don't know, like maybe I will be a good manager. Maybe I won't be. And how can you create the step to where it's not as scary to to test it out? Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we would basically put people that were ICs who wanted to be managers that were high performing, that we thought had the ingredients to be a good manager into a lead role. And the discussion was, We'll let you test this for three to six months. And we're going to give you a ton of feedback along the way. And our expectation is, is that you're giving us a ton of feedback on, does this give you energy or not? And if you don't like it, or we feel that you're unfit to do it, we'll just move you back to being an IC 
And it's not like this like scary thing. It's yeah. just like, hey, Big, like, let's risky. go experiment and test. Yeah. You don't, you have one foot in the pool. You can always get out, yeah. you're not in the deep end, like dying, and then you have to leave. So, first of all, if you don't have dual tracks and a lead type role, you you, you got to have that. I've, I've known I think no- it's a must. I've, I've known nothing but that for like 20 yeah. years, like 100%. And if you're not incentivizing IC equally, that's a problem because of that force function into management. Yep. Now, the thing I will say that that is the real difficulty, and I, I empathize, especially with early stage companies that are just running and burning at both ends. Everything you just said is utopia, and it takes the biggest thing that people don't have in these companies is time. Like yeah, for it sure. has to has to fucking be a tops down. This is important. Otherwise, for it sure. just won't happen. And it never gets rewarded. Never. Like, dude, make it a part of your incentive programs. Yep. Make it like a thing. Because I don't think good managers get rewarded enough. And I that don't think bad managers so well said. get thrown out enough. I so well said, Kelly. And and just to like double down on that point, you're exactly right that like CEOs end up optimizing for like, right now we need to solve a problem and they're completely missing the forest from the trees, which is like, well, if you invest in these people, not only will they be able to solve that problem, then they're going to be able to solve the future problems. I think a lot of CEOs believe that you could just recruit your way out of all of these messes. Yes. And it turns out that like, you don't know what you're getting when you're recruiting, right? You don't know if they're going to, they're going to actually operate like you want them to as as part of your culture. And so if you have people internally that you can lean on and grow and invest in, there is no better use of your time. Yes. The the amount of money and time and like you know, holding the business back that it takes to get rid of someone, hire someone new, ramp totally. them up, have them understand the nuances and how the cloth is of the culture. I mean, it literally wastes millions of dollars and people don't think about that because it's I know. not you, hard you money. You can't account for it. Yeah, you can't account. Because exactly. it's it, the iceberg underneath the water that no one freaking thinks. But like, Jesus, why are you missing numbers? Well, like, I'm telling you, the, the people in the organization, it, it impacts your business more than you ever know. And it's like a deadly secret weapon. Yeah, you can't see it. You can't account for it. But it's so, so, so real. And and I will yeah. tell you, Nolan, like we talk about these on all of our segments like how to partner with CEOs in these very aggressive, very competitive, very high pressure companies. You can't just be like, well, they don't get it. And they're like, you have to empathize. Like, of course they're under pressure. You're a CEO, right? Of a company. And especially in this macro, you have to start with where they are and then move it. You can't just point at them and say, you're wrong and you don't get it. There's so much pressure and there's so much that I've felt myself in this role for 14 years with founder CEOs, multiple. Yeah. And so you have to empathize with why they're feeling like that. So I'll end my my shtick with the bottom line for me with all of this stuff, pips, this, uh, uh, is start with the why, not the fucking activity. Don't start with changing or adding or subtracting activity. Yep. Start with, can you explain it on why you're doing it? Can you talk to the co-company at all hands? And yeah. explain? If you can't do that easily, then don't do anything yet. Figure that out first. And, and be okay with framing it as an experiment. And be okay doing shit that makes sense for you that may not make sense for Google or Facebook or any other company. It's dependent on the context of the organization in which you're working. So we'd love to hear your feedback on this. Let us know what you all are doing at your companies and let us know if you guys want to go deeper on any specific topics. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.